We live in a world that is always evolving, changing, and rebuilding itself. MIMA are on a mission to ensure that in this fast-moving world, we don't lose sight of what matters, people. This podcast will bring together thinkers from parallel industries to discuss how human-centered design can solve complex and crucial business challenges to create a more sustainable future with design. The series will allow the sharing of ideas, the opportunity to step into different terrains, create connections, and the creative thinking we need to keep designing and creating a better world. Hear us in conversation with some of the most interesting, boundary-pushing people working in design or design-adjacent fields, discussing the importance and positive impact design has on our everyday lives. This series is for the curious, the playful, the creative, and the creators. Welcome to Redesign. Hello, listener, and welcome back to Redesign, a podcast series from MIMA. We're a human-centered design agency who believes in working together with our clients and partners to make infrastructure accessible and inclusive to all. I'm Ollie Bennett-Coles, Head of Marketing here at MIMA, and one of your hosts for this series. And I'm Emily Yates, Head of Accessibility and Inclusive Design, your other host for this podcast. Welcome. In this episode, we'll be drawing from a variety of sectors to uncover the key factors that go into creating a seamless visitor experience. I've been really looking forward to today's episode. And here's the question for today. Whether it's a world-class sporting arena, art gallery, museum, or music festival, how do you create an experience for the end user that will keep them coming back for more? So who can we expect to hear from in today's episode, Em? Well, first up, we're delighted to introduce Ross Calladine, Head of Business Support over at Visit England, and the Government's Disability and Access Ambassador for Tourism. Welcome, Ross. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Our second guest on today's episode is Anna Lowe, co-founder and director of partnerships at Smartify and a hugely influential person in the art and cultural sectors. It's a pleasure to have you on, Anna. Hi, Ollie. Okay, so diving right into it. Let's talk about each of your journeys. Why are you both so passionate about human-centered design and what led you to what you're doing now? Ross, let's start with you. Yes, I've always been working in the tourism field. So I did a tourism management degree many years ago at Sheffield Hallam University. I uh, find tourism fascinating. And I've been lucky enough to have a role with the National Tourism Agency, Visit England, Visit Britain, for around 15 years. And I took over from someone who was doing some work in the accessible and inclusive tourism space and quickly learned what an important part of tourism that was and how far the industry really needed to go to develop more accessible and inclusive experiences. So over the last 15 years at the organisation, I've really been learning a lot and then developed a work programme to lead the industry, really, to be more accessible, more inclusive and provide fantastic experiences to everyone. That's amazing. Anna, what about yourself? Yeah, so I've always been interested in arts and culture. I've worked in museums straight out of university from the York Castle uh, Museums. I've worked at the National Museum of Fine Art in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and at the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam. So a real range of museums there. And I'm also on the board of trustees at the Tate. So over here in the UK, uh, you know, four major museums across the UK. And there I focus on outreach, particularly for young people's engagement. So really, yeah, just always been immersed in cultural heritage and museums. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about Smartify as well, Anna? Yeah. So I started Smartify with my co-founder, Thanos. Basically, we both saw the need in museums for some sort of guide, something that would be personalized and interesting for people of kind of all different access needs, all different ages. Because when you were going back into museums, even just a few years ago, you wouldn't be allowed to use your phone. They would say, you know, keep your phone in your pocket, no photos or anything like that. 
and you'd be given these old rented devices where you like put the headphones on and punch in the numbers and it just felt so outdated. And at the same time, you know, it was when Spotify was coming out, it was when Netflix is coming out and we just saw an opportunity really to create something that would be far more engaging for people. It's also something that people could take home after the visit. So instead of kind of handing back a rented device, actually take all that content with them get personalized recommendations. So we started Smartify kind of with that goal and we now work with about 800 cultural attractions, um, not just museums, so also more kind of traditional tourist attractions like Tower Bridge, for example, or the Acropolis Museum in Athens or Smithsonian. So a real range of partners uh, all over the world. Amazing. Much to my wife's disappointment, I was always a fan of audio guides. And uh, yeah, Smartify has completely revolutionized that and is amazing. Thank you, Anna. So moving on, could you discuss your current roles? Maybe give us an idea of what your day-to-day looks like. Anna, do you want to pick that up? Yeah, so at Smartify, obviously as a co-founder, there's a lot of sort of ad hoc things ranging from fundraising to kind of team management, looking at strategy and, and setting strategy across the board, so the product. But my main focus is on our partners. So I'm the director of partnerships and I work very, very closely with all of our partner institutions on the actual implementation of the product. So how are we helping them actually on site to engage with their audiences, to promote the product in the best way so that can be signage or staff training and also integrate with their system. So make sure that we're connecting to the right data points like their audience data or their collection data. Nice. Thank you. And what about you, Ross? I'm interested to hear both about your day-to-day of Visit England, but also your day-to-day as the Disability and Access Ambassador. Can you tell listeners a little bit about that as well? Sure. Yeah, I have a very varied day-to-day. So being the Head of Business Support at Visit England means I'm responsible for a lot of our work programmes that are all to do with helping mainly smaller and micro-tourism businesses such as accommodation operators, attractions of all sizes, to grow and develop and to be thriving businesses. So in one day, I could be working on the Visit England Awards for Excellence, which are a bit like uh, the Oscars of the tourism industry, if you like. So recognizing the very best businesses. And we actually have a category dedicated to access and inclusion in there. On another day, I might be looking at um, our rebuild of our business advice hub, which is a free to access set of resources and signposting on our industry website to help connect business owners with the support that they need to develop their businesses. And then, yeah, a lot of my time is spent on the accessibility program as well. Um, The role I was given by the Disabled Persons Minister just over a year ago now, a year and a half ago, was to be the Disability and Access Ambassador for the tourism industry. And that's been really useful in connecting me with counterparts in different industries and different sectors. So I can be speaking to the banking ambassador, the retail, there are ambassadors for airports and buses. So really good conversations. And I think what that tells us is that a lot of the challenges that we have in our sector are very similar to what the challenges are in other sectors even though our industry is really different because tourism is a very fragmented industry. It's over 200,000 mainly SME businesses, but actually there's still a fear factor like you find in, in any other sector. There's still misconceptions and we're trying to put a very positive message to businesses and say, this isn't just the right thing to do. It's not just a responsibility. It's actually a huge opportunity to develop the accessibility of your business. So a lot of our work is on giving practical tips and guidance to businesses. 
Ross, I'm really interested. How does our sector, the sort of tourism and heritage sector, stack up against those other sectors that you mentioned, like the other ambassadors? Do you feel like we're ahead of the curve? Oh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to be uh, pragmatic here, don't I? Um, <laughs> diplomatic. Um, I, yeah, I don't think there is a score that's applied to each of our sectors. We'd just be anecdotal. I, I'd like to think tourism punches its weight. I really feel that there's a strong movement within the industry right now. Having worked in it for 15 years, sometimes it's been like um, pushing water up a hill at times. But I really think that we're just getting over that curve now. I really feel there's momentum. Uh, and, and there's a number of reasons for that. I think, you know, COVID has refocused people's minds and people's priorities. I also think the sustainability movement is also helping because access and inclusion naturally fits under the social side of sustainability. So we're saying to businesses, this isn't a question of whether you spend your time on sustainability or accessibility. The two very much go hand in hand. So I think we're benefiting from the sustainability movement as well. Wow. You both sound like you have a lot on, but that's uh, really interesting. What would you say the kind of most challenging and rewarding parts of your jobs, both at a kind of a company level, but also at an industry level? Anna, what do you think? For me, the most rewarding parts of the job are when we've delivered something on site that completely changes how a visitor interacts with their site or thought they might interact with that site. I mean, an example recently, we just launched a major project with the Smithsonian American Art Museum, and they really wanted to create a completely new suite of guides. And it was a really pivotal moment for the museum because they wanted to redefine themselves and sort of broaden the narrative of American art and sort of give a much more human-centered and sort of emotional, empathetic understanding of what art is. And as well as kind of creating these tours, we decided to actually go one further and create this kind of personalized aspect where you could select um, your language, you could check Spanish, English, but you could also select ASL and audio described. And as well as just having the highlights tour where it's like, you just click a button and say, okay, this is the tour and it takes you on these set routes. The personalized sort of functionality that we developed meant that people could actually say, okay, I've got this much time and I need an audio described tour. And then these are the paintings that I'm interested in. And these are the kind of styles or themes that I'm interested in. And it would auto generate a tour. And when we launched this, my colleagues were kind of at the desk and a woman walked by with her sort of sign language interpreter. And she's like, oh no, you know, it's not for me. I've, I've seen it all before kind of thing. And she sort of waved them away. They're like, no, 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 try it because it's different. And when she tried it, she was just kind of absolutely taken aback by how sort of the personalized element welcomed her in rather than having to sort of be forced into this is the experience for people who need ASL it was actually much more kind of interactive and she you know she just kept on signing joy over and over again and she was so joyful that there was an experience for her and yeah those kind of things just make it worth it and honestly sort of it's really rewarding so stuff like that yeah that's amazing that's amazing and from the kind of industry perspective, what are the kind of rewarding and perhaps more challenging aspects of working in, in the sector we do? I think the challenging aspect is the challenge, which is for all business transformation. And as Ross said, you know, we have a very fragmented sector. We have a lot of organizations, but they're very small. They don't have kind of very high digital maturity internally. You know, they might not even have a head of digital, for example. They don't have big budgets. And so trying to kind of do digital transformation and sort of help these kind of museums and heritage sites move forward can be a challenge when, you know, they just don't have the resources or the skills in-house. And so it's a lot of change management. Mm, absolutely. 
And I really liked what you said there, Anna, about the ASL and the audio description as part of Smartify, you know, breaking away from you can only come at a certain time and have a guided tour and all of these things is really amazing and really game changing. And Ross, what about you in terms of your both company and industry challenges and rewards? What are they at the moment? I think for industry, the challenge in this space is engaging them. Every day we're trying to have new conversations and we're trying to have business operators really have a eureka moment. When I see these eureka moments, they're really satisfying. And it might be a general manager of a hotel who has no connection to disability in his family or friends network. But then a respected colleague with a disability might come and stay. And at the end of it, he asked, well, how was your stay? Was it five star? Because it's a five star hotel. And the honest feedback from his friend and colleague in the industry was that, for me, it wasn't a five-star experience. And he spoke about some of the difficulties as being a disabled person. And that was the eureka moment for that general manager. And every day, we need to be generating eureka moments within influential people within our industry. So I've been delighted to have been working with you, Emily, on, on a new toolkit for industry, working with MIMA for the last 11 months. And what this toolkit is doing is bringing together, for the first time collectively, best-in-class guidance for the tourism industry. So very practical guidance, very inspiring, real case studies, and helping to focus minds, I think. Often businesses can feel overwhelmed because actually the breadth of disability and impairment, you know, it's a spectrum and there's a large breadth to it. That could be overwhelming. So we're looking now with this toolkit to crystallise our ask. What does good look like? Let's give those real examples from industry. Let's give practical top tips. Let's give checklists so that businesses can actually be empowered to plan their journey on accessibility and reassure them that this is a journey. No one's saying you have to become an expert and no one's saying you have to do X, Y, Z by tomorrow. We just want everyone on the journey at their own speed But if everyone is on a journey, we're all moving in the right direction. And for us, it's to meet that ambition for the whole of the UK to become the most accessible tourism destination in Europe. Yeah, incredible. And what an amazing opportunity. And it's been something we've been really delighted to work with you on as well, Ross. And I think the thing that's come out of that piece of work for me is it's about giving the control back, isn't it? The control back, first of all, to businesses and business owners but actually then also indirectly granting disabled people, people with access requirements, with their own autonomy and choice and flexibility. And if we can do that for both parties, then that's a winner-winner chicken dinner situation, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. And we're looking forward to launching the toolkit around International Day of Persons with Disabilities. So we really want it to be the go-to resource for any business in the visitor economy across England. To move on from some of the challenges and rewards to perhaps some of the potential solutions in this space, Anna, can you tell us about some of the solutions you've been bringing into your work and what impact they may be having on industry? Yeah, sure. Well, when we first started Smartify, I'll be honest, we didn't really think about it as a tool for people with with access needs. That wasn't what we were going in, creating it. We wanted to create kind of a Spotify for our, you know, our kind of recommendations guide to art. But one of the first features we launched with the platform was our object recognition. So the idea that you can just hold up the camera of your phone, point it at something, and it will tell you what it is. It will tell you. 
This is, you know, the Mona Lisa, <laughs> although you probably don't need to scan the Mona Lisa, but, you know, you hold up your phone, <laughs> it scans any object. So it can be an architectural element. It can be a painting and it tells you what it is. And we started getting emails from people saying, you know, I've got low vision and this has completely changed my experience of visiting a museum. This is game changing. I can just point my phone at anything and it will tell me what it is because, you know, people didn't want to have to go and have those kind of large print things that are often kind of all curled at the edges and a bit gross. Or, you know, they didn't want to have to ask somebody and it gave the power back to them. So that was the first feature that we created with Smartify. That was kind of our MVP and it was just a huge success. And so since then, we've always tried to, I guess, bake that community into our thinking and into our R&D as we built out the platform since then. So as I said, you know, personalization and maybe we'll talk a bit more about the future of where things are going and with AI and kind of conversational guides even more. But there's a huge opportunity with digital products to help people navigate physical organizations, physical spaces like museums. Museums are incredibly complicated spaces often they don't have good wi-fi because they've got very thick walls so you know any solution that can help people navigate that space understand where they understand what they might want to see and maybe even challenge them to see things that they didn't even know that they wanted to see is a great thing brilliant thank you anna and i totally appreciate situations where perhaps the intention of a solution has not been accessibility but it's been the byproduct of it i think they're often the very best solutions that can benefit the masses as well. And Ross, how about you in terms of solutions that have come up from some of those challenges and rewards? Yeah, we have something called the three pillars of accessible tourism, which I think I coined many, many years ago, and uh, we've tweaked them over the years. There's there's four now, I'd say. So those are uh, customer, place, information, and employment. So looking at the customer pillar, in tourism and hospitality, there is lots of interaction with the guest. We need people that are making memories for visitors and for guests. So are you and your staff disability confident, disability aware? Training comes into play a lot there. So that's the customer. The second pillar, place, is what most operators' minds jump to straight away. They think about physical environment. They think about wheelchair users, widths of doorways, gradients of ramps. But place is a little bit more. It's about the amenities and the services that are available within a venue as well as the physical structure. Information, we do a lot in the information space. So information empowers people with accessibility requirements. So we created something called an accessibility guide, and it's a detailed written description of a tourism venue's accessibility with accompanying photographs. So anyone with access requirements can read that information and decide whether that venue, whether it's a museum or a guest house, whether it's going to meet their own individual requirements. So this is about describing, not prescribing. And it's a very important initiative that we're just about to move to an exciting new phase in the coming months. So we'll have an announcement on that shortly. And then if your business employs staff, the value of employing people with a range of different health conditions and impairments and actually having people with lived experience working within your business can really help that customer facing experience as well. So yeah, we've, we've transitioned now from, from the three pillars to the four pillars. Lovely. Love that. And absolutely agree. There are so many instances where businesses are doing really well by their customers, whether they're passengers, whether they're visitors to a museum, but so often they forget that internal intrinsic part of employment and that actually change can often happen from the inside out so 
I think that fourth pillar is brilliant and much needed. And another question for you both. Why do you both think human-centered design and a focus on the end user is so important? Ross, shall we start with you? Yeah, I think about universal design as just being a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, why would you develop a space that doesn't include everyone? For me, it seems common sense, but I know that there are factors that get in the way and mean that, unfortunately, even new build premises and properties might fall down at the last hurdle when someone's rushing to fit out an accessible bathroom and they throw the rails on at different heights and they don't understand the implication of putting those grab rails at the wrong height. So there has to be awareness all the way through a business's life cycle. Obviously, we hear it a lot that your golden opportunity is when you are developing something afresh from the first time. That's your best opportunity to build in inclusivity from the very start. But we actually know that in this country, we have a lot of historic properties. We have a Victorian transport network with our railways and our underground. So we're fighting against that. We're having to retrofit all the time. And we're doing good work, you, you know, Transport for London, doing great work around the transport network in London, for example. But those structures were not built to be universally designed. And um, every day we're fighting against stuff that's been built for non-disabled people. But let's make sure that everyone is banging the drum for inclusivity and accessibility. So no one can forget it when they're designing a space or they're designing a product or a service. It's in everyone's mind so that we don't make these mistakes again. I'm wondering if it's easier to, you know, think about accessibility with digital products than with the physical built environment, Ross, because once you put a, a handrail on the wall, it's pretty hard to, you know, kind of, well, expensive to make those changes. But for us, it's iterative. You know, we're constantly changing the design of the platform and the app. And I think that's one of the benefits of working in digital, I suppose. It's really easy to bake a user-centered design in constantly because you're constantly seeing what your users are doing and struggling with. I think, Anna, that digital affords so much opportunity to advance inclusion and accessibility. Yeah. And we're seeing some really exciting projects in the digital space right now. So, yeah, I think it's got a key role to play with inclusion in going forward. So interesting. Thank you both. So lastly, and I always love the answers to this question, and Anna, I know you mentioned the future earlier, but how do you think the future of your industries are looking? How can we course correct if we're on the wrong path? With museums and heritage and cultural attractions in general, I think there is much more awareness. I mean, Ross said it earlier, there's kind of a bit of a sea change at the moment in terms of the acceptance that accessibility is so important. It's actually at the core of what we do. If we're going to be open and, and a public resource and sort of encourage people to visit, then you have to focus on access, translations, making things sure that tone of voice and just how you kind of talk to people about objects, you know, not just the physical aspects of a visit, but actually thinking about, as I said, how you talk about things is really, really important. So I think that has been accepted by the sector. I mean, at the moment, I think heritage sites are still struggling post-pandemic to sort of get back to the same level of, of visitors, the same level of funding. We're also in the kind of cost of living crisis. So there are huge pressures on cultural attractions at the moment. And there's not a lot of funding around to kind of do these initiatives. So that's why we tried to kind of offer Smartify as kind of a low cost tool that can help them provide some of those services, at least the digital aspects of those. I think with the future, the, the really exciting thing that I mentioned is, you know, the possibilities of AI if we are able to kind of 
offer a truly personalized experience to people where they can ask questions. Like when you go into the science museum, you could say, hey, I'm here with my 10 year old daughter and my mum who has access needs and needs a kind of a step free route. What should I see? And they actually gave you a tour of the science museum that was kind of combined for those two needs as a family. Wow. You know, that would be completely different than sort of stumbling around and trying to kind of work out where to go and what to see and looking at those paper maps. So I do think we're almost there with the kind of data that's needed and the technology needed to offer those sorts of personalized experiences. That's so interesting. What about you, Ross? I am encouraged with the direction of travel. I don't think the speed of travel is as quick as any of us would like it to be. That's the sticking point. We, you know, we'd like to wave a magic wand and, you know, just have a universally designed set of experiences. Look, I can always see more positive examples coming on board. So visitor attractions, I'm never short of good practice. You know, we, we named Noah's Ark Zoo Farm in Bristol as our gold award winner for access and inclusion this year. And the breadth of work that they're doing on access is fantastic. I think the accommodation industry on the service side, so hotels, that's where I think there's the biggest potential for change. I think sometimes the very hierarchical structure and the fact that they're part of multinational companies can really slow the movement down in that space. But actually, through bespoke hotels and their president, uh, Robin Shepherd, they are changing the narrative for hotels. The work they've done with their hotel Brooklyn, first in Manchester and then in Leicester, building hotel rooms that are not just exclusively for disabled people and have a medical look and feel, They are beautifully design-led hotel rooms that are inclusive for everyone. And the difference is that those rooms drive the most revenue in the hotel. So there has to be, or there is going to be, that shift from the room that disabled people look for, but non-disabled people don't want to be assigned to, to a space that is truly inclusive and beautiful for everyone. And I think the model that they've designed with their liberty rooms, as they call them, they don't call them the disability rooms, they call them liberty suites and liberty rooms, I think is a really good direction for the hotel industry. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And am I right, Ross, in saying that one of the features of those rooms is that the hoist is also a a lighting feature? So you've got a hoist if you need it from the bedroom to the bathroom, but it's also a beautiful lighting feature. I've got that right, haven't I? You have, yeah. So the uh, ceiling tracked hoist is uh, a recessed tracking. And to anyone who doesn't know that it's a hoist system, it is a lighting feature and it's a beautiful lighting feature in the room. But for those that need a ceiling tracked hoist, it comes out of a cupboard, which is a lovely cupboard, you know, over the units, over the dressing table, and it uses that track system. So it's a great solution. Wow. It shows that human centered design can be both beautiful, but also good business sense as well as ethical sense, right? It's a, it's a really, really powerful example. Thank you. We're sadly coming to the end of the episode and Anna and Ross cannot thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so, so much for your time and your expertise. Yeah, we know how generous you've been with your time. So thank you so much for sharing all your, your knowledge and your insights. It's been a pleasure and truly invaluable. Thank you. No problem. Thanks so much for having us. So we're not just sadly coming to the end of this episode, but also to the end of the season. We've had quite the run over the last six episodes, haven't we, Ollie? We certainly have, and episode one feels like a long time ago. And when we spoke to Fiona Slater and Kirk Goodlett about how to create spaces for all, that was a fascinating conversation. It really was, and we also extended that accessibility talk a little bit when we 
spoke to Jenny McCoughlin from Heathrow and Martin Heng, who'd spent all that time at Lonely Planet around how to make travel more accessible. I really loved that episode. Yeah, it was really cool. And then we also moved on to kind of talking about designing customer-centric operations as well with Derek Bishop and Andrew Dickinson, bringing that culture piece around rail as well and colliding those worlds together. There's some really, really cool takeouts from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I particularly enjoyed hearing from Dr. Nikki Longley and Matt Marsh on creating positive change and business at last. I mean, all of their global expeditions and insights were really, really fascinating. So I hope the listeners enjoyed that one too. Absolutely. And, and uh, Nikki's work with refugees was moving and really, really powerful. Amazing work. And then we talked about how we can get to new solutions as well and, and innovation within your business with Will Redaway and Tim Murdoch, which are every business needs. Absolutely. And we finished the series with Ross and Anna, who we've just heard from all around seamless visitor experiences. So we really have covered a vast variety of, of sectors, spoken to a lot of different, very interesting professionals. And uh, I've definitely learned a lot. Hope you have too, Ollie, and certainly hope the listener has too. I feel myself getting a bit emotional here, Em. But um, I've, <laughs> I've loved hosting with you and I've loved being part of this podcast. It's been brilliant. If anyone is interested in, in hearing a little bit more about the topics that we talked about during the series or learning a little bit more, head over to mymentgroup.com to talk to one of our team. Absolutely. And we shall see you on the next season. Looking forward to it. And if anybody has any suggestions of anyone they'd like to hear from, do also send those our way as well. Exactly. Bye, everyone. Bye.